This is Innovating a Bright Future. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Innovating a Bright Future. I'm your host, Avery Kreiwold, and this is the show where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technologies driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. The Iceland story has finished for now, and now we are here at the final episode of Season 3. Before we get into the episode, I first want to say thank you to you for listening. If you've been here since Season 1, an even bigger thank you for sticking by the show all this time. A little window into my life here. I'm now attending Simon Fraser University for a sustainable energy engineering degree. I have found that university tends to take up a lot of time, hence why this season is coming out so late. That also means that I probably won't have time to spend on this podcast consistently over the next couple of years. That said, this podcast has been an incredible experience and I cannot thank you enough for supporting it and being here. I don't necessarily think this podcast is out of options though. The field of climate science, clean tech, and renewable energy is growing all the time, so there will always be new topics to cover. Now here is the important part. If you are interested in being on the other side of this show, being a part of the production, please email me using the email listed specifically in the show notes. I'm being serious. I won't have time to publish this show consistently anymore, so if you want to be a part of it, shoot me an email and we can have a conversation. Now, on to the show. This final episode is going to be about greenwashing. If you don't know what greenwashing is, greenwashing is basically lying about environmental actions in order to push a narrative about an entity. That might sound a bit complex, but it's actually pretty simple. The last decade has seen an exponential increase in consumer awareness. Buyers care more than ever about where their products are from, what they're made of, and what their impact is. Environmental awareness is one aspect of this trend, and is the facet we'll be focusing on most for this podcast. This obviously poses both a challenge and an opportunity for corporate entities. A company that genuinely is dedicated to furthering the collective good of the world has the potential to acquire more customers as consumers stray from large and uncaring corporations. Those companies that are more adverse to change, however, face the challenge of losing customers. Well, simple solution. Jump on the bandwagon. If you're losing customers because of your lack of environmental pledges, make some environmental pledges. The only problem is, the larger the corporation, the more adverse to change they are. This is because of multiple factors, including pure scale. It takes more time and money to make change in larger systems. It also ties to an attachment to the status quo. The last thing a successful company wants to do is change its business model and reintroduce uncertainty. So these, among other reasons, make actual change in corporations relatively difficult, which means there's a problem, and this is where greenwashing comes in. If a company has to change its practices to cater to environmentally conscious consumers, but that same company is outright opposed to change, what do they do? Lie. They lie. Obviously. In order to retain a customer base while upholding the status quo as a company, it is easiest to make those customers believe that you are making actual steps in terms of sustainability, while in actuality, you're not. Now to be clear, greenwashing is typically, but not universally, not entirely unsubstantiated. Companies rarely have the gall to outright fabricate a story and then sell that story to their customers. And that's mostly because that would be extremely easy to disprove and have a good amount of public backlash accompanying it. Think about it, and this situation is completely hypothetical, if Apple was like, 
Actually, all of our phones are now made with zero packaging. It's pretty easy to see for yourself, surprise, surprise, not true, and Apple will likely face consumer accountability because they outright lied to their customers. If instead, say, a certain clothing company that starts with H and ends with M says, if you bring in your old clothes for recycling, you get a discount, that isn't as easy to disprove, and therefore faces less public backlash. It doesn't hurt that they're also getting a discount. By putting the initiative in place, this clothing company suggests that you're doing a good thing by shopping at their store. And, because you're doing such a good thing, you get a discount on more clothes. The problem arises when you look a bit further into it and realize that only about 35% of those garments are actually recycled. Take into account that a bunch of its other environmental commitments relevant to water use and manufacturing are also stretched way beyond the truth. And this one isn't hypothetical. That's the key here. Greenwashing is most effective when companies stretch the facts beyond reasonable in order to push their eco-conscious narrative. When companies adopt this strategy, they can take small, incremental, and even negligible actions relative to the scale of the company itself, and then take those small actions, throw a bunch of media attention at them, and suddenly everyone is talking about how great the company is. All of this occurs while the company doesn't actually make any tangible change in the world. So when greenwashing succeeds, the company wins. It is the ideal marketing strategy, which is why it's so dangerous and something that we as consumers have to become more attentive to as the years go on and greenwashing gets worse. Successful greenwashing switches the narrative, making companies look like they care about the world around them even though their actions are almost negligible in reality. This is made even more effective by third-party media, news outlets, social media, and unaffiliated websites who rely on viewership for profit. If those third parties think that the public may find the greenwashing case at least a little bit interesting, they'll probably publish it and do the whole media hype thing. This is often done without significant research into the company's claims, which leads to more misleading information for the public. So now, there are probably a couple dozen, if not hundreds of news sources and third parties who have published the company's claims or actions or goals, which is exactly what the company wanted. These third-party sources add credibility to the company's claims by spreading the information around, making it seem like it's an objective fact because all of these media outlets are reporting on it instead of the stretched facts that it actually is. And that's what ultimately makes greenwashing so dangerous. It creates the illusion of an objective look at these companies, giving them credibility and implied support, and justifies continued support for these companies under the false pretense of them making actual change. It prolongs the bad business practices that are doing so much damage to the planet and public health. With that in mind, I briefly mentioned the company that starts with an H and ends with M, but let's take a closer look at some greenwashing cases to hopefully get a sense of how to best identify greenwashing, and then before the end of the episode, we'll talk about what to do about it. I'm going to continue to avoid saying the names of specific companies, because I'd rather avoid getting sued, but I'll make it pretty clear who I'm talking about. Let's talk about a certain oil and gas company, one of the largest in the world, who have made a point of advertising climate-friendly options in recent years. Let's call this company Clam, and these ads will be our topic of choice. On Clam's homepage, three out of eight of its menu's headings relate to climate and environmental progress. 
that's a good start for us, really putting out that front of eco-friendliness. Let's see if they can actually back it up. Under one section called Achieving Net Zero Emissions, nice buzzword, they make some empty promises about how much the Paris Agreement is a foundation of their policy. Great, fine, you can say whatever you want. They're pretty general statements, non-binding, not a big deal. Directly under those statements, it says, quote, Achieving our target could mean, by 2030, we are providing enough renewable electricity for 50 million households, operating more than 2.5 million charging points for electric vehicles, producing eight times more low-carbon fuels, and increasing the amount of biofuels and hydrogen in the transportation fuels we sell to 10%, from 3% today. And all of that sounds alright. Renewable electricity is super important. Charging points for electric vehicles is a step in the right direction. However, I want to pull your attention to a couple of very important words doing a lot of work for this statement. First of all, it says that achieving the goal could mean the following, which implies that it could mean other things too. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it leaves the door open to skate around accountability. Next, it says producing eight times more low-carbon fuels. Low-carbon is the important operating word here. Low-carbon is a relatively open term. The next sentence states increasing biofuels and hydrogen in transportation fuels. This is fine, just like the rest of this statement, but as we've discussed on the show before, the carbon intensity of hydrogen is almost entirely based on its production pathway, and biofuels carbon intensity very wildly based on where they are sourced from and how they're used. These are the kind of sneaky statements that may sound good at the outset, but end up being disappointing or even deceiving. I will of course link the CLAM website in the show notes where you can find everything I'm talking about. One of the running themes through the CLAM website is their promise to be carbon neutral by 2050. This is the epitome of greenwashing, and I'll show you how. Of course, this climate-friendly branding is taking center stage of CLAM's marketing because it's clear that this is what consumers are looking for in this day and age. To be a competitor on the global market, you have to have climate in mind. And this is where the problem of carbon as an externality re-emerges, and the difficulty with climate definitions becomes clear. Throughout the site, CLAM states that it will reduce the carbon intensity of its products by 100% by 2050, which makes up 90% of the company's emissions. That term, reducing carbon intensity, is the problem, and involves another instance of greenwashing within the company back in the summer of 2021. This instance in particular has been publicly criticized by many, including the Netherlands Advertising Code Committee. In this specific case, Clam had been running an ad campaign that allowed customers to offset their emissions from buying gasoline at Clam gas stations. The point of the ad was, of course, to illustrate a world in which consumers didn't have to do any of that annoying thinking and decide whether or not they should drive a gas-powered car for climate. Don't worry about that, Clam says, we got you covered. You just come to the pump, grab your fossil fuel slurry, and go home. We'll take care of the emissions. These problems are both founded on Clam's use of offsets. We've talked about these before on the show, specifically how carbon offsets have already proven themselves to be a double-edged sword when it comes to climate progress. You see, that's what the majority of lowering the carbon intensity of our products really means. That doesn't mean it's exclusively their plan, but it is safe to say it is a large portion of their climate agenda. And the problem is, carbon offsets just don't work consistently. 
They're too difficult to track, too hastily set up, and too poorly monitored to provide an accurate view of how much carbon is actually being saved from the atmosphere. Clam has been pushing this narrative, and it actually still has ads for carbon offsets at the pump plastered all over its website. Not all offsets are bad, some are great and some are effective, but it's hard to know which ones at this stage, which makes the whole process of carbon offsetting a little bit untrustworthy. What we do know is that nature-based offset solutions are not one of those solutions that are great and super effective. The math simply doesn't line up. I want to stress for this short section that I do not know exactly what program CLAM uses, but they repeatedly talk about their nature-based carbon solutions, most of all, tree planting. And as great as tree planting is as a weekend activity, an occasional hobby, or a legitimate job that you dedicate your life to, it simply doesn't fit the bill as a carbon offsetting structure. To craft an effective carbon offset, it must be tangible, reliable, and long-term. One of my favorite episodes of How to Save a Planet, another climate podcast that I highly recommend, follows a duo who travel the country buying and destroying stranded refrigerants. They then sell their labor as a carbon offset. If you don't know, refrigerants are extremely dangerous gases that have a detrimental impact on the climate. Their actions are an effective offset program because one, their actions are tangible. You know exactly how much gases they are capturing, and just how much pollution is prevented when those gases are destroyed. They are also reliable. Once the gas is destroyed, there's no question of it escaping again. The same is true for long term. Once it's gone, it's gone. Tree planting is difficult to track, making it less tangible because there's no concrete way of determining how much carbon a single tree can absorb in a year, or five, or its lifetime. The entire metric of emissions offset is based mostly on a guess. That is without even considering the reliability of the system. Even if a typical tree can absorb 10 tons of carbon in its lifetime, if a tree gets trampled by a hiker and dies the day after it was planted, it makes it difficult to include that tree's contribution to the offset. Because the carbon offset is calculated on the assumed carbon absorption for plantation to end of life, if anything happens to the forest prematurely, whether it's a forest fire or deforestation or a disease, all of that sequestered carbon is just released again. But the carbon offset has already been bought and paid for. So when Clam tells you in an ad or on their website that their products will be zero carbon by 2050, just think about where they're getting that number. Because if they're still selling you gasoline, they're still producing greenhouse gases. And then it becomes a matter of how exactly you're discounting those emissions after they're produced. Now that is just the beginning of the greenwashing iceberg for this company. We haven't even talked about how they just completely ignore their petrochemical businesses when accounting for emissions. This also didn't touch on how, even though they like to post articles and ads about how their emissions peaked in 2019, they're still planning to consistently expand their fossil gas businesses over the coming decades. There is so much more that we could talk about regarding how CLAM is desperate for public support on climate, even though they aren't trying very hard and continue to allocate the vast majority of their capital to fossil fuels. I've linked a site called The Greenwashing Files, which deconstructs CLAM and a few other companies for their greenwashing and misplaced investments. It's been a very helpful resource in writing this episode, and I recommend you dive deeper if you choose to. So what can we learn from the CLAM case? Well, the most important thing to learn, in my opinion, 
is that companies are good at knowing what you want. If there's a trend in the world marketplace, the biggest corporations in the world are going to hear about it. That is an inevitable reality, and there isn't anything we as consumers can do to stop them. What we can do is be aware that that is how branding works, and be on the lookout for greenwashing or other deceitful marketing strategies, whether it be about workers' rights, the environment, or unjust outsourcing. I think another important aspect of recognizing greenwashing is to listen to your intuition. This isn't something I would normally suggest as a strategy, but in this case, I think it can be pretty useful. If you see an ad or a company statement or pledge, and something feels wrong about it, like it doesn't fit with their past actions, or it came out of nowhere, or it doesn't quite line up with everything else you know, don't immediately condemn the company, but take the time to do some more research and find out what's really going on. When looking for more specific signs of greenwashing, it can be helpful to search for hypergeneral, hyperspecific, or words that are similar to buzzwords at the time, but not quite the same. For an example of this, let's look back at some of the clam marketing strategies. Instead of stating a goal to make all products net zero or zero carbon by 2050, they state instead that they will reduce the carbon intensity by 100%. This is a little bit strange, because they sound pretty much the same, so why not just use the more common term that customers probably have a better understanding of? Well, because if you read the fine print under the big bold letters, it says that it's compared to 2016 levels. So that makes the entirety of their pledge almost meaningless. Of course, Clam's oil and gas empire did not begin emitting greenhouse gases in 2016. Nor is 2016 carbon intensity going to be near sufficient to meet the climate goals on the international scale. So what their plan really is, is to buy trees so that when they produce oil and gas and the multitude of other fossil fuel products, any emissions produced in 2022 that were not produced in 2016 are absorbed by the trees they planted. Trees which may or may not be alive and growing. Who really knows? Not so groundbreaking and optimistic now. It's semantics and rhetoric that are used to convince consumers that actually, we care about this world. This giant, multi-billion dollar corporation, we truly care. It may seem like profit is number one, but don't worry, we're looking after the planet too. And that just doesn't line up. In keeping with this kind of theme, it's also helpful to evaluate a company before and after its claims. Clam again, good example. If you saw the Clam commercial on TV about the one cent per liter carbon offset for fuel, and you saw how they were trying so hard to convince you that they are a good, eco-friendly company, you should first consider, where is this coming from? Clam has never been an alternate Clam has never been an altogether compassionate company. It's never been known to take on humanitarian or environmental projects out of the good of its corporate heart. So why now? What has changed? That is the question. What has changed that could have caused such a monumental shift in corporate strategy? And is that plausible when it comes to their actual actions? In the case of Clam, it's clear that it isn't. They can't possibly do a 180, become one with nature, and start caring about climate change. It goes against their business model. So what do they do? They put up an appearance of compliance. Give the people what they want. When it comes to greenwashing, remember that any company can do it. It's not unique, and it has been proven in recent years that companies are extraordinarily good at picking specific issues to cherry-pick data, 
stretch the facts, and construct convincing greenwashing arguments that are easy to defend if they get caught. In recognizing greenwashing, listen to that feeling of unease, that something is off. It is not a sound, logical proof, but it can keep you aware that maybe you don't have the full truth. Pay attention to the rhetoric, what specific words or phrases are used, and why. How do they frame the issue to make themselves look better? What if you took a different angle? And take into account other considerations. Does this align with past actions and values? Have they completely restructured their branding, and if they have, have they done the necessary rearranging beneath the surface to justify the complete change of face? Are other companies in the sector doing the same, and can you do your research on their competitors to see just how much of their claims are being substantiated or not? You won't be able to determine if a company is definitely the right choice for you or not or whether they are completely lying about their greenwashing, or actually have made some progress and are just exaggerating. Or, on the off chance that they are an actual revolutionary, you can't know that for sure either. That is intentional. That is intentional. They don't want you to figure them out. But you can get pretty far using the resources that you have. So if I was to give you some advice on what to do about greenwashing, I would say the best thing you can do is be vigilant and speak up. Not everyone even knows what greenwashing is, and it's something that feeds off of ignorance. So for this issue specifically, talking about it is one of the most effective ways to counter it. Also, vote with your dollar. If you feel wrong about a company, if you feel wrong about a company, like maybe their underlying values don't align with yours, whether they say so or not, buy from someone else. That applies mostly to consumer brands, where your dollar is your choice. In the case of Clam, it can be more difficult because how can you choose between oil companies? You really can't. While some may be doing more for the climate and renewable energy than others, at this stage, oil companies are still primarily oil companies, and you will be buying from a heavily polluting industry regardless. Where this becomes important, however, is in investment. It's incredibly important that greenwashing does not take control over investment into these companies. As much as Clam would love your $80 at the pump because you think you're offsetting your emissions, it would really prefer a multi-million or multi-billion dollar investment from banks or government bodies. The chances of them getting that, in today's political and societal climate, increase exponentially if people think they have climate in mind. And that is truly unacceptable. We will never prevent greenwashing of companies. They will always market themselves to the consumer and we can only be aware of it, never stop it. But we can't let companies sell themselves to investment banks or the government on false pretenses, and that's when it becomes even more important to speak up. If you witness this kind of greenwashing and interaction, speak to your representative and make it known that it will not be tolerated. As with anything in the climate space in recent years, it's about perseverance and determination. We are, for the most part, individuals fighting back against corporations with billions of dollars at their disposal. And the only way to win is to fight together and fight loud. Well, I must say that this is only an intro to greenwashing. We could probably do a whole season on greenwashing, and who knows, maybe one day we will. But for now, this is all you get. As I said, the greenwashing files in the show notes are extremely helpful for navigating this topic, and generally, the internet is pretty good at calling it out as well. 
Of course, don't believe everything that you see, but a Google search of pretty much any company and the word greenwashing will give you a good starting point at figuring out if there's anything to worry about. I also want to reiterate that this is an important topic, and a challenge that will probably only become more prominent as time goes on and companies rely more and more on branding to sell products. Before I sign off for what may be the last time, for a while at least, I want to say a couple of thank yous. This show has become a very large part of my life, and it has been with me through the last couple of years. I have to thank the Bosco Foundation, the Canadian Right-of-Way Education Foundation, and Simon Fraser University for their support of this project, whether directly or indirectly. I also want to thank the small team that made these episodes possible. And finally, my friend Caleb, the first person who ever asked me to listen to it with him. As I said at the beginning of this episode, I think this show has more in it, I just can't be the one who makes it happen for the time being. So if you're interested, please email me. I will not be leaving the show, but I just won't have time to dedicate to produce another season as is. If you're interested in hosting, let's see what we can do. Thank you again to you who make this show possible just by being here. I hope you have enjoyed this season of Innovating a Bright Future. Send me your feedback, if you have any, and stay innovative. Take care of yourselves.